Hey, thanks for checking out the weekly podcast from Chattanooga Valley Baptist Church. We hope you found this episode to be challenging and encouraging. Now, let's turn our attention to this week's sermon from Pastor Brian Carroll. In his book, Men Sent from God, Richard Dehan provided a list of some of the criticisms that pastors receive. If the pastor is too young, they say he lacks experience. If his hair is gray, he's too old for the young people. If he has five or six children, they say he's irresponsible. If he has no children, he's of course setting a bad example. If he uses a lot of illustrations, he neglects the Bible. If he does not use enough illustrations, he's not relevant. If he condemns wrong deeds, he's cranky. If he does not, he's compromising. If he drives an old car, he shames his congregation. And if he drives a new one, well, he's setting his affection on earthly things. The fact of the matter is, is Jesus probably would not be received as the pastor of most modern congregations as uh, uh, his ministry experience was only limited to three years and so uh, wouldn't have made the first cut in the search committee process. Of course, we know that life in the public view comes with its fair share of criticisms, especially when you're a famous televangelist now. I once heard a preacher say, though, there were two types of people in the world. There were those that he had offended and those who had not heard him preach yet. (laughs) Of course, we understand that we are by nature, by that human nature, critical and condemning. Some of us have perfected that skill more than others. But this is also one of the dynamics of our sanctification that we should see take effect when we give our life to the Lord Jesus Christ. As we grow in Christ, we ought to see that side of our nature begin to change, that critical, condemning spirit should begin to soften. However, there is a risk in our growth as kingdom citizens. You see, if we're not careful, then our efforts at applying the principles of the Sermon on the Mount can lead to their own kind of dangerous and sinful tendencies. You know, we've worked hard over the last two chapters to become ideal citizens of the kingdom of heaven. We've taken a beating from the Savior's demands, but we're all better off as a result. We've learned how to pray, We've learned how not to pray. We've learned how to fast. We've learned how not to fast. We've learned how to give, as well as learning how not to give. But thank goodness that my righteousness clearly passes that of the scribes and Pharisees. If I'm not careful then, I can get to the point of of even convincing myself that my righteousness may even be surpassing your righteousness. However, when I get to that place, It is a dangerous place to be. The clear instructions of the Lord Jesus Christ here is not about comparing our righteousness or our relative states of righteousness to one another. Here's the thing. The human heart can be so dangerous that it can even take our spiritual growth and turn that into a sinful urge, which is the reason for Jesus' next warning in the Sermon on the Mount. If you've got your Bibles, please turn with me to the last chapter of the Sermon on the Mount, found in Matthew chapter 7. This morning we'll be looking at the first six verses of chapter 7. 
Matthew chapter 7, beginning in verse 1. If you've got your place and you're able, would you please stand with me in reverence to the reading of God's Word. In Matthew chapter 7, Jesus says these words, Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is the log in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the clear instructions of Jesus. May we be a people who are worried less about judging one another and more about judging our own hearts. May you help us to understand these words appropriately today. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Thank you. You can be seated. You know, in this postmodern world in which we live, verses 1 and 2 may be the most popular teaching of Jesus that we can find. Now, now it's only popular if we take it out of context. And it's only popular if it's being applied by those of a more liberal moral persuasion. But it is definitely the most popular. In fact, the phrase, don't judge me, has almost become the, the modern equivalent of abracadabra. You remember the magic word abracadabra, a magician standing on stage, waves his magic wand over the hat, abracadabra, and out of the hat comes a fluffy little bunny. It's a magic word. Don't judge me is like a magic word. If, if someone is doing something that is morally questionable, all they have to declare are those three words. Don't judge me. And then suddenly there is the magical uh, act of, of unequivocal acceptance of whatever is worthy of being judged. If someone is, is stealing from the cash register at your workplace and they say, don't judge me, suddenly that's morally acceptable to do. If someone is acting in a way that is in clear violation of the clear commands of Scripture, all they have to do is declare, don't judge me. And suddenly that is to become morally acceptable. How do we work through this, though? I, th I think we all can see the handwriting on the wall today. As, as Bible-believing Christians, we're, we're supposed to, to accept almost anything, right? Uh, with the, the exception of a, of a particular list of current postmodern sins. If you push back at all against these things, you'll hear the phrase, well, who made you judge? And good Christians will know that Jesus said... Do not judge. So we're left in this place where we're supposedly we're not allowed to judge. At the same time, though, we're required to make moral judgments. So how do we make moral judgments with the prohibition against judging? This is a catch-22 that we find ourselves in. Our only hope to navigate these ridiculous waters is that we need to understand more clearly what Jesus' teaching on the matter is all about. First, we need to clear the air about this topic. Jesus is not suggesting that kingdom citizens should be unopinionated, impassionate, or indiscriminate. In fact, there are many places in the Bible where the good citizen of God's kingdom is expected 
to be able to judge and discern. For example, in verse 6 here in chapter 7, Jesus says, Do not give to the dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearl before swine, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. I don't know about you, that sounds like a pretty judgy statement. Right? I mean, right off the bat here, in order to understand what Jesus is saying, I've got to, one, determine whether you are a dog or a pig. And in order to successfully determine your dogginess or your pigginess, I have to make a judgment about you. If I'm to avoid placing my pearls in front of you in your path, it requires me to understand just how piggy you actually are. These aren't terms of endearment that Jesus is using here. So there has to be some level, some sort of criteria by which I am able to judge you as a dog or as a pig. Husbands, I would encourage you to not use this criteria of anyone who lives in your home. Over in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 15, the Apostle Paul says this, the spiritual person, listen, the spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. How in the world... Can I be a good citizen of God's kingdom, follow the precepts here in the Sermon on the Mount that tell me do not judge, but then at the same time be a spiritual person who judges all things? How do I work through this apparent contradiction? Either the Bible is confused or we are. And I think you know the answer to that question. The truth is, when we open the Bible, we are constantly being asked to make moral judgments. Consider, for example, the biblical responsibility of church discipline. It's not something that gets talked about a lot today. But this is the process that's spelled out throughout the New Testament by which the church excludes gross and unrepentant sinners from the body. It's not something that we do on a whim. We don't just gather on Sunday and say, all right, who are we going to discipline today? That's not how it works. It's not something that we treat lightly. Uh, we don't go and practice church discipline because somebody made a mistake. But when somebody stumbles into ongoing rebellion without repentance, the church has to make a judgment on that person's moral character. It's a process. It requires investigation. But at the root of that process, someone has to judge the behavior of another uh, clearly, we need to have a better response than the contemporary use of don't judge me. If that's the best we can come up with, then we never get to the root of these issues. You see, Jesus' prohibition here against judging, it's not about our discernment. Jesus is not asking us to, be, uh, uh, to lack discernment. He is asking us to not be, and, and this is a big word for Scrabble, censorious. Sensorious. If you've ever heard that word before, I want to tell you what that means. To be censorious, C-E-N-S-O-R-I-O-U-S, it means to take criticism to a whole new level. It's more than just simply judging someone's actions. There's a heart issue that's attached to it. It might help to, to think about it like a home plate umpire in baseball. Uh, a home plate umpire, it's not a job that I would want, but it's a pretty, I mean, the job description's fairly short, right? Balls and strikes. 
and, and the associated uh, rules, but balls and strikes. That's his primary job. As a matter of fact, uh, if every baseball game I've ever watched, I've, I'll, uh, a home plate umpire can get, get by with just knowing two words. He doesn't even have to know the word strike. He can just do that right there. Imagine a censorious umpire who not only calls balls and strikes, but also mocks the people playing. Imagine an umpire who called ball and then shouted to the mound, I've seen better pitching at a t-ball game. Or after the batter swings at a well-thrown fastball, you swing like you're hitting at a pinata. That's a censorious umpire. John Stott said it this way, censoriousness is a compound sin consisting of several unpleasant ingredients. It does not mean to assess people critically, but to judge them harshly. The censorious critic is a fault finder who is negative and destructive toward other people and enjoys actively seeking out their failings. He puts the worst possible construction on their motives, pours cold water on their schemes, and is ungenerous toward their mistakes. It's no secret. There are people who believe that criticism is a spiritual gift. And I'm not talking about constructive criticism. That's acceptable and should be received as such. But constructive criticism isn't doled out from a desire to tear people down. Its intent is to build people up. Censorious critics are the nasty kind. I think we've all been in church before around downright nasty people. It doesn't take long to know when you're around those people. They maximize other people's offenses while completely disregarding their own, which is a sign of true immaturity. Now, you may be tempted at this moment to have a name and a face pop into your head, but be careful if you do. You don't want to stumble into your own judgmental spirit by associating a name and a face with this, with this sin. You see, maturing believers recognize their own deficiencies in character and that they are working on their salvation with fear and trembling. That's the sign of a maturing believer when, when a, a believer recognizes, I don't have it all together. I struggle in all so many different areas. There's, there's no reason that God should, should have any sort of favor on me because of my inadequacies. How can I dare look at yours when mine are so glaring? Maturing believers recognize that if it were not for the grace of God, there's not much keeping us from going down the same pathway of moral failure as the person we are tempted to judge. Immature believers have a pharisaical sense of self-righteousness. And the Sermon on the Mount has been relentlessly attacking that sense of self-righteousness and that sense of self-importance. Censorious individuals completely lack charity in their assessment of others. Censorious individuals believe that they understand not just the actions of others, but also the motives of others. And this sort of judgment is so dangerous because only God ultimately can judge with that degree of knowledge. The danger about this kind of attitude also lurks in how contagious it can be. Get a group of people together and let a hypercritical person begin their skewering of whoever their next target might be. 
And suddenly there's a group of people who have embraced that attitude. And somewhere there's a victim who doesn't need to be criticized and lambasted. There's a victim who needs love and support and accountability. And instead what they get is nothing but nasty. It's often been said that the church is the only army that shoots its wounded. Again, I'm not talking about situations where there's open rebellion against God and unrepentant sin that requires the church to practice discipline. I'm talking about the brother or sister who stumbled, who wants to be right with God, but who finds nothing but cold stares and hard hearts within the body of Christ. You see, when Jesus says to judge not, this is what he's talking about. I can't imagine how many people in our churches have made some missteps along the way and they were met with self-righteous, judgmental attitudes rather than grace and love. The command to judge not is not a requirement to be blind, but rather a plea to be generous. Consider for a moment the woman caught in adultery in John chapter 8. A terrible situation. She was guilty, no doubt. Her sin was evident. But what does Jesus do? He doesn't line up the Pharisees and say, let's get her, boys. Instead, Jesus recognizes the woman's state of mind, recognizes her the, the, the shame that she's under, recognizes that she regrets the, the lifestyle choices that she has made, and she looks at those Pharisees and he says, let those without sin cast the first stone. There wasn't any. One by one, those Pharisees began to drop their stones, the stones of execution which they had set aside for this woman were dropped. And after a moment, there was nothing left but Jesus, the woman, and a circle of rocks that were once met for her condemnation. Jesus didn't look at her and say, sweetheart, everything's okay. You go back doing everything you were doing before. Instead, Jesus looks at her and he says, neither do I condemn you go and sin some more. No. Go and sin no more. One was broken, sorrowful for her actions. Jesus judged her as an adulteress, but he did not condemn her that day. A true picture for us of what this command to judge not looks like. If you have a hypercritical, censorious attitude, if you are prone to judge others for their failures, I want to ask you a simple question. Do you want God to apply the same standard to you that you apply to others? Are you harsh, unforgiving, supercritical? Are you quick to condemn everyone and everything that doesn't quite meet your standard? Well, consider some of the words we've already heard in Jesus' sermon. What about our judgment against sexual sin? It's easy to judge the adulterer, but according to the kingdom standard, adultery is more than just the physical act. It begins with impure thoughts. What about our judgment against dishonesty? Again, Jesus has warned us that there shouldn't be a scrap of dishonesty in our lives. 
This all points to a very clear reality. We cannot be hypercritical and judgmental against our neighbor's actions. But the truth is that we should probably work to find a charitable spirit towards our brothers and sisters because God has demonstrated abundant charity toward us through the cross. To drive home Jesus' point, he he gives us a little mini parable. It's not a long story. It's not a lengthy parable. It's just a simple parable. He says there in verse 3, Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take that speck out of your eye while there's a log in your own eye? You know, I think the eyeball may be the most sensitive part of, of the body that we can, we can have on the, on the outside. I mean, I've never touched my liver, uh, so I don't know how sensitive my liver is, but my eyeball is pretty sensitive. Uh, I remember as a little boy that we went over to, um, to, watch, uh, to watch drag races over at the Optimus Drag Strip there behind, it wasn't Costco at the time, but now it is. And um, it was one of those moments where, you know, kids always are learning that their parents are smarter than they think they are. And there comes a point in time when, uh, when, a, when a parent is the smartest person in a, in, a, in, a, in a kid's life. That's usually when they're younger, and then there's a moment when they're older when that finally clicks. And this was one of those times where I realized that my dad was probably the smartest man that I knew. Uh, because we were watching the drag races from the side, and as a little boy, I thought, I want to go see from the back where, where I, can, I can see down the track. And so I said, let's go, let's go watch from the back. He said, that's not a good place to sit. And I said, oh, it's a great place to sit. Let's go watch from the back. And uh, he said, you don't want to sit there. But I was a little kid, and I knew everything, right? And so we went, and we sat down, and he let me learn a tough lesson that day because when those dragsters start, they always burn out to get their tires hot, and stuff is prone to fling off the tires when they do that. And sure enough, I'm sitting there, and a piece of rubber from a tire flying at 200 miles an hour hits me right in the eyeball. I thought that I literally had had my eyeball gouged out with a spoon. It was awful. I didn't have to go to the hospital, thankfully, but it was, it was, it was absolutely awful. And, and that was a piece of rubber. It doesn't matter. Uh, if you get just the tiniest bit of dust in your eye, what happens? Your eye starts to water, and, and you, you get this immediate reaction. It doesn't matter. Uh, pollen, dust, uh, it's awful. Uh, your eye, if it gets anything in it, is a, is a source of immediate discomfort and pain. And if you've ever had something in your eye, you know, and I think that the 100% agreement in the human race is I need to do whatever I can do at this moment to get this out of my eyeball. Right? I mean, I think we all would agree there. I think this has been the universal human condition for as long as humans have had eyeballs. Give me something to get this out. Imagine having something in your eye and going to the doctor to have it removed, and the doctor walks into the room <laughs> like this right here. What's going on with you today? Well, I've got some sawdust in my eye. Oh, is that all? Yeah, I, I've got some sawdust in my eye, and I, I need your help to remove it. Well, come closer. Let me help you. Uh, can you come closer? I can't quite. I've got tweezers in my hand. I'm ready to help you get this sawdust out of your eye. But for some reason, I can't seem 
to get close enough. If, if you went to the ophthalmologist and the ophthalmologist came, out of, came into your room with a one-by-four plank attached to his face, you would immediately say, I believe I need a new doctor. That's exactly what Jesus is saying here. You're in no condition to help someone else if your predicament is this right here. I suspect Jesus' first listeners reacted the same way that you guys did when you saw me put a one-by-four in my eye. There was probably laughter. There was probably a sense of irony, because it's intended to be that way. There's something that needs to be said here. There's a couple of things in this little parable here that we need to pay attention to. And the first is this. Don't miss this. Specks in eyes need to be removed. He's not suggesting here that, that the guy walking around with sawdust in his eye is in an appropriate condition. Uh, we all understand. You get something in your eye, it needs to come out. So, so we don't read this parable and say Jesus is primarily worried about the guy with the plank in his eye. No, the guy with a speck in his eye clearly has a problem. But if you've got a plank in your eye, you also have a problem. Specks in eyeballs must be removed, and this is where the church has to exercise judgment and discernment. This is where appropriate accountability and church discipline comes into play. We don't turn a blind eye to irritated eyes. That is not the point of Jesus' teaching here. However, what is Jesus' point is that we need to make sure that we're not ignoring our own problems while we go on a witch hunt for everybody else's. And we certainly don't need to maximize everyone else's issues while we ignore our own. This may be good for social distancing, but it's a terrible example to the world around us. And Jesus said, it is clear hypocrisy. And so what Jesus is telling us to do here is that we need to make sure that we are watching our own issues before we go start probing into other people's issues. Kent Hughes said it this way, We find it so easy to turn a microscope on another person's sin while we look at our sin through the wrong end of a telescope. We use some strong terms for someone else's sin, but euphemisms for our own. We easily spot a speck of phoniness in another person because we have a logjam of it in our own lives. And ultimately, people who were toting logs around in their own eyes, listen, they don't really care about the speck in someone else's. The only thing they really care about is building up themselves, pretending their sin is insignificant, 
and building their own resume of self-righteousness. Something else to notice in Jesus' parable. Look at verse 4. How can you say to your brother? That word brother matters. That word brother indicates that this is a family issue. That word brother means that this is a place for the church. That's why the body of Christ is so important because we actually come together. We all actually recognize that we all have stuff in our eyes and we need each other to help keep our eyes clean. But we don't need to be walking around with planks in our eyes helping you solve your problems. We also need to be mindful of what our issues are too. The process by which specks are removed from eyeballs is difficult and delicate. It requires gentleness, carefulness, patience, and sympathy. But I think it also requires us to recognize that we in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ are dealing with something even more delicate than the eye because we're dealing with the human soul. And so as we consider Jesus' instructions to judge not lest we be judged. Let us understand that we first need to judge our own hearts, judge our own souls. We first need to look in a mirror and see just how cloudy our eyes are so that once we've worked in our own heart, we can, with gentleness, with care, with sympathy, with patience, with respect, help one another walk in a closer way with God. So I would ask you the question today. How many of us today need a spiritual eye exam? How many of us today need that big thing that they use in the eye doctor there to just come down and sit on our face and dial in and exactly see what our problems are so that we can accurately and effectively Bring them to the Lord. Would you pray with me, please? God, we are thankful for the instructions of Scripture that remind us that we are not to judge. We are not to turn a blind eye to sin. We're not to ignore the reality of the sin and suffering in our midst. But Lord, we are not to tear down our brothers and sisters that we might puff ourselves up. We are not to completely ignore the things in our life so that we can tear down others around us. Lord, help us as we grow in you to recognize our own deficiencies, our own shortcomings, and that we would strive every day not to, not to tear down those around us but to take a deep, long look inside our own hearts and to see where we come up short. God, we live in a world where just declaring we shouldn't judge means that all moral evaluation is off the table. Lord, we understand that that's not the case. So God, as your people, we, we constantly have to make moral judgments. We constantly have to determine right and wrong. But Lord, help us to do it in a way that we're not puffing ourselves up, 
and making ourselves stand tall on the failures of others. But that, God, we would humbly acknowledge that but by your grace, we would go the same direction. And so, God, if there lurks within us a hypercritical, judgmental spirit, if there lurks within us a, a censorious attitude, an attitude of, of, of building ourselves up while we tear other people down, oh, God, would you lead us today to repent from that attitude and to see a change of heart? And that, God, instead of tearing others down, we would seek to build others up. Not to continue in their own way of folly and sin, but to encourage people to walk in truth and righteousness, to be obedient to your commands, and to follow your precepts. That we might be citizens of the kingdom, and that the world around us might see that citizenship on display in our lives. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to have a time of invitation. If you're here today and maybe there's some, some, some heart attitudes today, maybe you've got a judgmental, critical spirit that, that um, maybe the hard times of this year have kind of amplified that. Maybe today it's, 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 it's your day for eye surgery. You've been worried about other people's, but maybe today is the day that you seriously take a look in the mirror and deal with that plank that's sticking out of your face. Um, you can do that. You don't have to come to this altar and pray. You can pray at your seat. You can pray over it as you go home today. But just to take time to, to seriously, critically deal with your own heart rather than everybody else's. Maybe you're here you're not a Christian at all, and today you want to give your life to Christ. I'd love to have a conversation with you today about what that means and how you can give your life to the Lord Jesus Christ. We're going to stand together and sing, and you respond as the Lord would lead. Thanks for listening. If you would like more information about Chattanooga Valley Baptist, check us out on the web at cvbchurch.org. If you would like to join in person, we worship every Sunday morning at 1045. We're just minutes from downtown Chattanooga. We hope to see you soon.